Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, 10%ers. Great guest this week, Ezra Klein. You probably know him. Big podcaster, big journalist, editor at large for Vox. And uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of things, uh, how meditation has uh, helped him and how it has not in in the age of Trump, um, and whether he thinks uh, mindfulness can play a role in in the insidious, pernicious problem of political tribalization. First, though, one piece of business and uh, then your calls. The piece of business mentioned last week, but bears repeating. There are, I believe, still a few tickets left for the event in L.A. that I'm going to be doing on Wednesday, May 2nd at 8 o'clock with Sam Harris. That will be at the Skirball Cultural Center, skirball.org. That's me and Sam. We'll just be rapping. It'll probably end up on one or both of our podcasts at some point, but uh should be fun. Uh, let's get to the phone calls. Here we go. Yeah, hi, Dan. This is Rod calling from New Zealand. Uh, thanks for all your great work. Um, my question is, I started practice about 18 months ago and initially noticed huge gains almost immediately in my daily life, the ability to respond rather than react, and even my long-suffering wife noticed that I was a slightly nicer guy. However, I've noticed after a few months um, diminishing returns from my daily practice and maybe even a regression to my old temperamental hard wiring. Um, I was wondering, in your opinion and experience, is this plateau in benefits uh, a common thing? And can you make any suggestions to switch my practice up a gear so I can uh, continue to grow? Uh, Thanks for everything, Dan. Cheers, mate. Bye. So cool that we've got anybody in New Zealand who's who's, uh, interested in in the 10% happier stuff. That's just awesome. I should have given the the, ca- the caveat, uh, which you guys are kind of used to by now, but I, I always have to say it. I answer these questions to the best of my ability. I don't hear them beforehand. I'm I'm not a meditation teacher, not a mental health professional, just a reporter who happens to meditate doing his best. So th- that being said, I, I do have some thoughts, um, for what they're worth, on, on your uh, perceived predicament. One is that yeah the the meditation practice doesn't doesn't in my experience go in some you know straight uninterrupted line toward nirvana it's uh you know you will hit peaks and valleys regressions plateaus again perceived peaks and valleys uh regressions plateaus um uh sprints um you know where you feel like you're making all sorts of progress um but it's so multifactorial the practice itself is um you know mysterious in how it plays out in any individual mind it can be affected by so many exogenous factors going on in your life that you may or may not even be aware of i'm certainly not aware of them um uh so i i i wouldn't get too wrapped up in thinking about this um too wrapped up um i i do i spend a lot of time getting wrapped up in the particulars of my practice you know am i am I, how's my ability to concentrate etc cetera, etc cetera. and my teacher joseph goldstein uh is always like you know you should have a little mantra of who cares You know, every time you get sucked into these thoughts, just like tell yourself, who cares? This is just a waste of time. He calls it the playing and replaying of the quote unquote practice assessment tapes. Waste of time, largely, not entirely, but largely. It's it's not necessarily bad to to have some critical thinking about your practice, but it can be 
it can tie you up in, in unnecessary knots. And it sounds to me like you're really focused on how it's playing out in your actual life. And again, you made a bunch of progress. Your wife apparently noticed it. That's all great. But it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. And some weeks, depending on what's going on, you may even be worse than you ever were. But that's just be- there's so many reasons for that. And, and it doesn't in any way suggest to me that you should give up on the practice. But so you to get to your actual question, how can you shake things up? Well, I think that's a constructive thing to look at. Um, and uh, there are lots of things. The first thing that comes to mind is to toy with more meditation. You know, um, uh, that could either mean more formal meditation, just boosting your daily dosage of seated meditation. If you feel like that's um, it, it, that that is not feasible, given your schedule, I totally understand that. So I would say then maybe experimenting with meditation, uh, what we call at at 10 percent happier free range meditation, you know, turning the washing of the dishes or the walking between meetings or even the driving of your car or even the using of your phone into little meditation, into mindfulness exercises, because this can do something really important, which is to take the practice out of the formal uh, sessions and into your life, which is, of course, the point. Um, the other thing to toy with is to, uh, and if Jeffrey Warren, my co-author in my recent book, were here, this is the first thing he would have said, is to look around look around at maybe joining a community. Um, I suspect, I don't know where you are in New Zealand, you may have said it, and, and, and I, I, didn't, I wasn't listening mindfully enough, but... I suspect there are groups of people who get together and medica- meditate, um, and it probably. I I think joining one of these groups can have a lot of benefits. It it normalizes the practice. It can you get you get introduced to lots of other people who are going through the same things you're going through. So that's normalized too in terms of feeling like you may have hit a plateau or or regressed. Um, and it's inspiring. It can inspire you to do more, to experiment, to see what areas of your life you can apply the practice. So doing that and also if there are great teachers around, maybe striking up a relationship with the teacher, which is, you know, I found to be immeasurably beneficial in terms of seeing all of the little cul-de-sacs that I drive myself into um, and being able to sort of navigate my way out with the help of somebody who's been there, him or herself, Um uh, many, many times, as the case, often these very experienced teachers have all, all of these uh, little problems that we've bumped into. They've experienced thousands and thousands of times, and so they can really give you great advice about how to, to get out of it. So those are just some thoughts about how you can uh, possibly uh, shake things up a little bit. And I, I, I admire your instinct rather than just giving up. All right. Call number two. Hello, Dan. Uh, this is Tom from Canada, and this is uh, on the air. Hello, fellow meditators as well. I've been meditating now for the last six months using your app. Um, I've just started listening to the podcast, so uh, please excuse my ignorance if this question has asked, been asked before. But from an athlete's point of view and mainly a golfer's point of view, how does somebody get in or is it possible with meditation to get in the zone, quote-unquote? Um, I've heard about visualizations while you're meditating, and I heard about um, just an essence of calming yourself down. But is there an uh, an aspect of meditating that could basically be beneficial before a round to calm the nerves and kind of keep you in the moment or even during the round that could keep you in the moment. Uh, so curious about your thoughts uh, and I'll be keep listening to the podcast. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for the call. I, I have to, I'm going to profess like just utter ignorance here, uh, not only about athletic performance because I'm, I'm not a great athlete, but 
specifically about golf. I actually grew up on the back nine of a golf course, but we were not members of that golf club, and I, therefore, never really learned how to golf. That being said, we have an excellent course on the 10% Happier with the guy named George Mumford, who is awesome in every way, uh, and uh, was the uh, meditation teacher for the Chicago Bulls and the L.A. Lakers during uh, their respective championship runs. And to this day, works with all sorts of athletes. And if memory serves, what he says is that meditation cannot magically put you in the zone, but it will make you, quote unquote, zone ready. So puts you in the zone where you're most likely to get into the zone. Um, so what would I, what kind of meditation would I do? Uh, you, you mentioned two, two scenarios. One is calming nerves beforehand, and the second was improving performance during if again if my memory serves of what you said during during uh, your voicemail um so now i'm just going to speak from my own experience as a somebody who has extremely limited um athletic experience um with the with the guidance that you actually go check out the course from from george mumford so here we go what i would do beforehand is i find that focusing on the breath for me, is the most calming. In particular, the breath as it enters and exits the nose. I find that to be the most calming. So I would find a quiet place or put on some headphones and and do that as a way to calm myself. Although visualization is another thing I know many athletes do. I don't know enough about it to give advice Two previous podcast guests, however, it might be worth going back to listen to their podcasts, as I suspect they they may have spoken about it. One would be George Mumford himself, who's been on this podcast, and Michael Gervais, I believe, uh, who uh, works with the Seattle Seahawks. In the actual game of golf or whatever you're doing, I do think one way to get yourself out of your head and uh, into the moment is to quite literally use your body to bring your attention to this physical sensations, which are always with you, but we often ignore because we're stuck in our own head, you know, spinning off into random thoughts or horrible projections into the future based on, you know, all the terrible things that could happen to us if we miss this putt, blah, blah, blah. Just to come back to the feelings of your hand on the club, the feelings of your feet on the ground, wind, sun, all of that can just cut that cycle down. It's not magic, but it, in my experience can help you just refocus on what's happening right now and pull you out of all of your phantasmagoric um, uh, uh, images in your in your mind. Hope that helps, but uh, again, I admit um, I, my lack of experience. Okay, so let's 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 go to Ezra Klein, our guest today. He is, um, as I said before, just a, a kind of really exciting, dynamic young journalist, for sure on the um, on the left. So just know that. Um, so he approaches things from a pretty specific standpoint. He is uh, the host of the Ezra Klein Show, which is a, a great podcast. Um, there are lots of great podcasts within the Vox network, including one called The Weeds, which I, I really enjoy. Um, he used to work for The Washington Post. He is now his title at Vox is editor at large. He is very much in the daily sort of hurly-burly of politics in the era of Trump. And so it's intriguing to me uh, to hear how meditation ha- has been useful and and also the limits uh, uh, of its utility. So here we go, Ezra Klein. From ABC, 
This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I always ask the same first question, which is okay. how did you start meditating? What what happened? So I have – I tried meditating on and off in college. I went to UC Santa Cruz. So By the way, I, it's so weird to sit here with you because I feel like I know you because I've listened to your podcast so many times. And, and, and I and, feel the same. And I listen to the weeds. Well, podcasting has that strange quality because yes. it has this intimacy. Yes. And so when, yes. when, when you meet people you listen to, you're like, oh, I've been inside your head for a very long time. <laughs> or you've been in my head. Yeah, yeah. And then it's bad because they're almost inevitably a disappointment. <laughs> well, well, I'll do my best. The podcast is, is – is, is it's putting the best face forward is it though i mean i mean i think i'm i think in virtually all of my work i am a worse person than i am in my actual life and in my podcast i'm a better person than i am in my actual life unpack that for me so i'll, I'll, I'll take both sides of it so i feel that and for, for those who don't know me I, I do a lot of political writing and and, and reporting i think that in a lot of the commentary i do in how I and, and others end up portraying myself on Twitter and, and, and on TV. I do a fair amount of cable news. I think those are spaces where I end up coming off more definitive and in some cases strident than I am, even as I'm trying to. I, I, I think those spaces have a flattening effect on, on a personality. I think it's true for me. I think it's true for a lot of the people I know who I also see in those spaces. The podcast is nice, and, and it's something I'm, I'm trying to do with it on the Ezra Klein Show in the Weeds, uh, where I'm trying to give a lot of voice to the fact that I have interests beyond politics, that I am hesitant, that I do not have full confidence in a lot of my opinions. And in some ways, going into those spaces and being able to have those kinds of conversations with those parts of myself in front of mind, I like the person I am there. Um, and so I, I think it's often a better person than I am in other in other parts of my world where I'm running around and being stressed out and <laughs> you know feeling behind. But but I do. This is something that I'm struggling with a lot, which is okay. If I like the person I'm coming off as in my podcasting, it, that I'm being in my podcasting more than I like the person I'm being, say, in my writing. How do I bring those together? And I've not found the answer to that, but it's something I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about quite a bit. It's a really interesting thing to think about, but maybe something you shouldn't be bludgeoning yourself with because we all – That play... doesn't sound like me. Yeah. <laughs> we'll definitely get to that. My kind of guy. Now you're uh, wondering why – so you want to know why I meditate. Well, we'll get to that. I've totally derailed you. But now that we're talking about this, it seems to me, and I haven't thought about this deeply, that we do have different roles at different points in our lives. And it's natural – like I like myself less – when I'm lecturing my three-year-old about not putting his finger in the sockets than I do than when I'm giving a sympathetic ear to a colleague who has an issue. But that's just a different role. Like like myself is probably not the language I should have come up with here because that's very um, – as you say, the problem there, maybe I should just learn to like myself. <laughs> but what, what I mean there is that I think that this is the first period as a, in, in my career as a political journalist where I feel so profoundly uncertain, where I feel that not only do I not know the answers, but virtually nobody I can see seems to have good answers for, for what's going on in the country, for why things feel the way they do, for what's going on in this administration. It's the first administration I've ever covered where you call people and you try to get an account of the reasoning and nobody can give it to you because nobody even knows what it is. Because it all lives in Donald Trump's head. And maybe not even there, right? Things just happen. I mean, there, there, is, something, there is something quite Buddhist about all of it. But um, I 
I think that a lot of political writing is not well tuned for uncertainty. Um, I think column writing, commentary, which I do a fair amount of that, obviously, opinion writing, that has a real push towards here's the answer. Here's my take on it. One of the things hot that, takes. Everybody's doing hot, hot takes, takes smart takes, all kinds of takes. I like I like takes. I wish we I would like to go back to having some more neutral language for that. But but yes, there, there, there's a lot of that. And sometimes, look, sometimes you do have a take. Sometimes I do want to say, you know what? This healthcare bill is bad. I'm not hesitant about that. It's going to throw a lot of people off of health insurance. It's bad. We shouldn't do that. But a lot of the time right now, I find myself struggling with issues where I think there are like five plausible answers and maybe six more that I haven't even figured out or I haven't heard or I haven't been able to find in my reporting. And I am trying to think about how do you create formats where that can come out? How do you create formats where instead of saying, here is the answer, you can say, here are a couple of possibilities. And look, there are ways to do it and we do do it. The reason uh, Vox is an explanatory journalism organization, the reason we built it in the way we did is that one thing that is helpful to do in this period is to focus more on context than we have before. When when everything is so chaotic, it's good to zoom out a lot and say, okay, what is this actually part of? But putting aside the question of, of how it makes me feel about me, I just read a lot of commentary right now, and it feels like we are operating with old formats and models for a world that our level of certainty about it and our level of knowledge about it is a whole lot less than we like to pretend. Well, what would a new model look like? I mean, uh, just spitballing here. So something I play around with doing sometimes when a new event happens, a big event happens, I will do, I do not have a good name for what this is, but just bulleted lists of thoughts. Instead of saying, you know, he, instead of having a piece where you have a thesis and a reverse pyramid structure or it's opinion piece and you have a thesis up at the top and you're running through the argument getting down to the bottom, these are just 15 ideas and they stop and they double back on each other and sometimes they contradict each other i think that the i love that i think that the i like that too um although the problem with that is it is hard in the structure of the piece to communicate what it is you're doing uh i mean sometimes the unless intro, you come up with a rubric unless you come up with a rubric but even so the rubric will often be well here's some thoughts i have on this which is fine the the readership figures it out but it, it isn't as clean as i'd like well, it to know, be you know just just i'm thinking I, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name but there's an amazing uh, tv critic for the new york times james Poniewozik. Poniewozik. yeah so he used to write for time magazine and i've been reading his hot takes on tv episodes for a long time and he used to end his his like rapid reviews of episodes with what he called a hail of bullets and he would just do what you just described just a bunch which of is a thoughts. hail of bullets of bullet points a bunch of random thoughts some of them could contradict one another but they were just like thoughts what do you think makes a take hot i don't know i mean i'm not in that business um but i think it's i guess it's hot because it it is um fresh like in other words it's related to something that just happened and because it's got a a very specific point of view which is what you're reacting against from at least from what i take away from what you've said which is that a hot take precludes you from subtlety nuance or uncertainty so the things that so i struggle with this because we seem to have gone into this language of takes so i'm, I'm somebody who has you know, background in a lot of parts of news. Um, I've done a bunch of TV. I've done. I've been on the news side at the Washington Post, uh, where I, I did some commentary too. But I was in the the newsroom, not on the opinion side. 
And we've we've moved into this language of hot takes and smart takes, and I almost want to create a a take taxonomy. Yeah. Like to me, a hot take is a is a take that is too fast and underbaked. Right, which you get, you know, something happens, everybody's got to come up with an opinion on it real quick, and, and you read some things. Sometimes people have a lot of knowledge about something, right? You're, you know, it's healthcare, and Sarah Cliff is writing a piece, and so that that's, you know, Sarah Cliff is, is our healthcare amazing, reporter. She's way. amazing, She's great, um, and, and that's going to have a lot of knowledge to it. But if you don't, you can end up with the hot take, which is you are substituting the heat of your opinion for actual knowledge about the issue. Well, there, that's a there's a smart a take. There's a reported take, um, but but I, I something about the take language bothers me in part because I think a lot of news has more take in it than people admit, mm-hmm. and this idea to call this thing over here takes is a way of denying that that I don't love. But you're just you're hearing me think this through. It's just language. It's just language that, that sticks with me a little bit. I think you're onto something. Um, never in the history of my in the brief history of my podcasting career, have I derailed a guest so rapidly and so thoroughly? Well, you but, know what I was saying about being able to communicate hesitancy and yeah. different points of view. <laughs> so you, I cut you off at UC Santa Cruz, where you dabbled with meditation. So Santa Cruz is a it's a spiritual place. Um, if you've if you've never been there, it is. I, I think it has to be the most beautiful college campus in America. It is built in a redwood grove. Where literally the rule is that no building can be more than two thirds of the height of the tallest nearby redwood. Oh wow! So I mean the the, the redwood grove dominates. And when I was there, uh, I you know read a lot of Thich Nhat Han and, and and read about Buddhism and you know tried to do meditation, but it didn't stick. Uh, I would say it only really stuck after I launched Vox, which was in 2014, um, and it stuck then because just. Launching and running Vox was incredibly, incredibly stressful. And I just needed not just meditation, but other things that would bring down my level of complete overwhelm and panic that, that I had at all times. And why, why were you overwhelmed and panicking? I understand why you were overwhelmed. There's a fragility but... to building something new. Um, why don't you describe what it is you were building? So Vox is... A, we're an explanatory news organization. Explanatory news. So we focus, and, and, and the reason I, I emphasize that is that a lot of news organizations are built around breaking news. They are built around, if, if you look at what the product of a story there is, it is the new bite of news. And that's a really important thing to do. Um, it's something I've, I've done before, and it's something that, that I admire today. What I think a lot of those organizations traditionally have not done well is give people the context they need to understand that new piece of news. So you're covering something, I'll use here uh, an example I'm familiar with, that is part of the genesis of Vox itself, Obamacare. Uh, I covered, along with Sarah Cliff, uh, the Affordable Care Act's genesis and passage and implementation when we were at the Washington Post. And something I always felt there was that not just us, but but a lot of, of our friends in the media, we were doing a great job answering the question of what happened with Obamacare today. Like just like what happened with Obamacare in the last eight hours? Every day, if you had come to Wonk Blog, which I, I launched at the Post, you would have gotten an answer on that, and I think it was a good answer. But when I would read the emails I got from people, they didn't actually want to. That's like not a question anybody ever asks. They wanted to know what was Obamacare, how did the subsidies work, and 
what we didn't have were real products uh, that were easy to find and that were continuously updated such that as we were iteratively covering a news story, we were able to give people the context if they were coming in just right now to understand the whole of the story. So Vox, uh, in a lot of different ways, with a lot of different products and, and ideas in it, was launched to focus on that, was launched to focus on this question of, okay, when the news happens, can we build an organization that is dedicated in our workflows, in who we hire, in the products we build, in the formats we prize, to giving people that broader context? And so that, so, so, so that's the idea of it. We're now, we've now been around for about four years. We have podcasts. Uh, we have, you know, we're on YouTube. We're launching a Netflix show. There's a lot of great stuff happening. But just, I, I want to emphasize that because it's harder for you to do than me, babe. But at least three of the podcasts I listen to regularly today explained, which as of this recording is quite new, which basically explains, as the title would suggest, some big topic in the news on any given day. Your show, the Ezra Klein show, and then the Weeds, which uh, the aforementioned. Sarah Cliff, uh, Matthew Iglesias, and others, uh, you often are on there, getting into the weeds of a policy issue. I find uh, all of them useful in many ways. The weeds, you know, especially if I'm covering something like gun violence or whatever, to hear a detailed discussion of gun policy is just incredibly useful for me as a journalist. I think is useful for many people as a citizen. Thank you. Um, so anyway, you guys are doing a lot of stuff just to... A lot of great stuff. So I appreciate that. And I'll slip you the 20, the 20 after the show. <laughs> um, but so when we were launching it, and it doesn't feel this way now because, I mean, now we're a bigger organization. But I found the experience of launching something like that and going through the rapid growth. So within, uh, you know, less than four years, we grew from zero people to over 100. I found the experience of launching that to be just very nerve-wracking. Um, and one, you're always dealing with the distance between the thing you've built in your head and the thing you actually have at that moment, right? It takes time f to build an organization. And so particularly when you're, I don't want to say particularly, I'm sure this is true in a lot of different industries, but Vox, you know, as, as one of the people who came up with the vision for it, you have to build to be able to execute on that vision. So one, I found there to be just a lot of stress in all the things that I wanted us to do that we weren't yet able to do. Well, were you in a manager? Uh, you were the editor in chief, but were you the CEO of? So Vox Media, our parent company, has a CEO. But in terms of Vox.com, I was the operationally. In I charge. was the operationally top manager. So it, any problem that did not get solved eventually came to me. Inter yeah, that doesn't sound fun. Well, it. it there are different personality types. Vox, um, I stepped down as editor-in-chief about, I think, probably now four or five months ago. And our editor-in-chief, Lauren Williams, is an amazing manager. And there are things that I do that are fun to me that Lauren would hate. Um, there are kinds of stress I handle well that are not her favorite thing. But she really enjoys the work of managing people. Um, and I enjoy some of the work of managing people. But I don't really enjoy the work of organizational design once it got too big. So I found running Vox. I had managed at the post. I had I managed roughly seven or eight people ultimately. And I really liked that. And I really liked managing until it got to like 30, 40 people. And at a certain point, when it's not too big, you're actually managing the product. You're managing people through managing the product, managing people through assigning articles, through editing articles. And I have a lot of thoughts about that. And, and I like doing that. 
when it got to the point where you're managing the managers and managers, mm-hmm. that's an incredibly important thing to do. Uh, I I will not like brook for a second any um, criticism of middle managers or, or, or managing the people who dismiss management books. I mean, managing is, in a, is a really important thing to do well. But it wasn't a thing that I think I did uniquely well, and it wasn't a kind of stress that I held well. So I can go on cable news or talk in front of a lot of people or write a big piece and I'll handle that stress very well. Um, The stress of having conversations where you have to tell people they're not doing the job, you know, the way you need them to do it, or even happier conversations than that, just the stress of all that kind of interpersonal management, just dealing with people as people, uh, just the way I am, I find that, I, I just found that I carried that a lot. So was meditation helpful in this context? Somewhat. I've never I I ended up finding meditation to be more interesting than helpful if that makes sense. I I really like it. I'm a big user of the as I've told you before, the the 10% happier app. Uh I like reading books about it and I find it a really really I I find mindfulness really interesting and that act of seeing what is really happening in my own head. I can't say that I find it calming. It doesn't have the effect that it often sort of gets touted as having. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. And, 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 and who knows? Maybe I'm on to something, to something you're going to say, oh, no, that's, that's the way it was always supposed to be. But I sort of started it because I thought it would help me manage my stress. And it didn't do that much of that. But it helped me see what was going on in my own head a lot more clearly. And that had a, that had a different value. And I find it as an act, I find it pleasurable and a way of pulling back time for myself. And so it's become a big part of my life. I really want to do a silent retreat, which I haven't done yet, but, but, but that I'm excited for. Uh, You should, I think it's uh, given what you're describing, I would argue that you should investigate that. And I guess offline, I can help you think about how to do that. But I, I want to go into what you just said about clarity as opposed to calm. Um, I've thought about this and written about it a little bit, but I wouldn't call myself an expert. But um, my experience, the calm comes through the clarity. So that to a lot of people get into meditation because they want to be calm. In fact, there's an incredibly popular meditation app called Calm. Um, And I think there's a very um, wise marketing because people don't feel calm. They feel the opposite of calm and and they, they want they want to get back to some sense of serenity. But in my understanding of Buddhist-based or mindfulness, secular mindfulness meditation, the goal isn't to feel any specific way. The goal is to feel whatever you're feeling clearly so that it doesn't own you. And it is that clarity and, then, and, the, and the lowered volume on the internal chatter, or even if the chatter is the volume isn't down, you're less susceptible to being carried away by the internal chatter. That leads to a different kind of calm, not sitting on a mountaintop in a loincloth calm, but calm because you're not so owned by whatever neurotic impulse is flitting through your brain. I, I didn't find, and I still haven't found, I think, that it gives me that freedom. And, you know, so I had a, I had on, on, on my podcast, I see Robert writes why Buddhism is true up there. Yeah. And, great and I, I like I like Bob a lot. And I really, really like that book. And that book has ended up having and, and it'd be interesting to talk with you about this, uh, a different and kind of more profound effect on me as it has sat with me. I've been thinking about it a lot recently in, in non Buddhist dimensions. But what, what I will say is that and I, what I said to him was, 
in some ways, I have found the act of meditation to be unnerving. Really confronting how little control I have over what's going on in my head, really observing that and not quite being able to take control over it has been it's a profound thing to realize and i'm sure with enough work and with enough meditation there's you know you can you can get to the other side of the shore and um you know get more more distance from it and 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 more freedom from your own neuroticism what i found is that it gave me a much better sense of my own neuroticism but not necessarily uh of all that all that much distance from it uh, which maybe is okay too, but, but isn't the, the? I mean, I feel like the sense is the distance, and, and again, this is dangerous. Tell me about that. I often describe myself as like the the dude who slept at a Holiday Inn last night and therefore thinks he can perform open heart surgery. You know, like so. I'm not a meditation teacher, so I'm giving you my hot take based on my own uh, based experience. on only writing a couple of books about it and <laughs> launching a meditation app and uh, having a podcast where you interview the world's greatest meditators so it's, it's some experience <laughs> some experience but the meditation teachers who i truly truly respect have you know my wife for example is a physician um and she has years and years and years of hardcore training the meditation teachers who i truly truly respect have way more training under their belt mm-hmm. than my wife does. And my wife is highly skilled. Um, so guy like Joseph Goldstein, who's my teacher, 50 years of really serious practice. Right now he's unreachable because he's doing a, a several-month-long silent meditation retreat. He does it all the time. He's studied with great masters all over the world. So uh, I wonder what somebody like that would say based on what you're saying as opposed to what I'm saying because my level of experience is – way lower but but to me what i hear and again i'm just refracting it through the lens of my own experience is is this having a greater sense i believe that was those are the words you used of your own uh neuroses is actually the mechanism for the calming that it's just seeing them clearly gives them less power over you it's like the wizard of oz you know it's that all of a sudden you're seeing the man behind the curtain just something else you said, and I'll, then I'll shut up and let you react to whatever whatever you want to react to, is the sense of being unnerved by the lack of control. Actually, I, my experience is healing that, that yeah, we, we, can't, we don't know where thoughts come from. We don't know where emotions come from. It's a mystery. It's called the mystery of consciousness. And actually getting in touch with that can lead over time to an unclenching of like, oh, yeah, I'm in the middle of a conversation with my wife or with my boss or whoever, and I'm having homicidal thoughts, right? <laughs> but rather than act on them or beat myself up for having them, I can realize, yeah, I don't know why this is happening, but I don't need to be owned by it. That all sounds to me like it would be true were I a more advanced and and healed person. (laughs) I don't don't disagree with any of that. You know the thing you made me think about, though, there, is that when I think of the life of someone like Joseph Goldstein, or uh, we had a, a writer at, at Vox who just went on an ayahuasca retreat and wrote a fascinating piece about it. And so maybe I'll use this as the example. And, and he came back from that. And one of the things he was saying is that, you know, this ayahuasca retreat where he did ayahuasca four times in four days was just the singularly most profound experience of his life. And on the other hand, then you leave. And after having this very, very, very intense confrontation with your own ego, with your own psyche, watching yourself dissolve before your very eyes. 
then you come back into the world that is constantly reinforcing a particular a particular story of yourself to you. You come back into the world and somebody's like, "Hey, where where's the piece on your ayahuasca retreat?" You know, that was supposed to be due 2 days ago. Um, you know, and 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 you then now speaking for my life like your dogs need things and you you know, it, it's just life has a lot going on in it. And sometimes I wonder when I think about the structure that monks have built for themselves. When I, I think about what it means to be unreachable on retreat and what it means to be in a monastery, and I, I, re I read some memoirs of people who have done that, I think, well, is the secret of the meditation, is the secret realizing that if you want to escape from this, you actually need to escape from the cues of that life more profoundly. And that absent the ability to do that, sitting down for 20 minutes a day is good. Um, it's good for me. I, I continue to do it and, and think it's good for people. But what it can do is limited. Um, I, that, that's a question that I, I struggle with. I've come to think a lot more about the cues we all have in our lives and the ways in which they reinforce a certain story of our ego and reinforce certain feelings, um, how different I can feel when I radically change my context. And so one, one possible synthesis of what you're saying is that Having seen these things about myself, that is knowledge I could use to begin to change the context of my life such that the same things weren't reinforced. But, does that but unless I do that, it doesn't, it doesn't do that I'm much. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, unless I'm misunderstanding you, uh, I'm thinking of what's coming to mind is this old Zen parable about an older monk who has spent a lot of time meditating but hasn't gotten enlightened and is kind of frustrated about that and he declares that he's going to hike up a mountain and meditate until he gets enlightened and that's it and on his way up he passes another monk who is enlightened and he asks the guy hey the guy's carrying like a um uh um a, a bale of hay or not a bale of hay like a, a, a bundle of sticks um and uh, the guy says to him, what is enlightenment? The, the unenlightened monk says to the guy with the sticks, what is enlightenment like? And the guy drops the sticks. And then the, the guy says, well, what do you do then? And he picks up the sticks and keeps walking. And similarly, there's another Zen, uh, I think there's a bunch of, uh, somebody will correct me on Twitter if I'm wrong about this, but there's a famous set of Zen um, paintings that uh, shows a, a guy with some... Um, uh, cattle, I think, and it has something to do with enlightenment. But the, the punchline is, at the end, you go to the market. In other words, you don't have to withdraw from life so thoroughly that the cues are all gone. It's just that you're relating to the cues differently. And I don't know that you ever um, – I don't know that it's possible for somebody in our position to ever – so thoroughly relate to the cues differently that we are what would be described as enlightened. But that's why I like the whole 10% thing, because over time, you're developing the skill of not being a rat in a maze, not being uh, um, a robot controlled by a malevolent uh, ego, you know, that, that actually the, the, the var various stimuli and triggers in your life can actually be served in a more supple way. And over time, you just get, get better and better at it. I buy all that. And, and I, I very much do not want to be taking the position that unless you're going to go devote your life to, to, to a Zen monastery, that there's nothing you can do about any of this. Um, I, I'm one thing I should say is in all of this, where, where you say, you've said a number of times here, like, look, you're not a meditation master. 
I'm not even a very good meditator, so I want to be really careful that sometimes when you're you're in the in the guest chair on a podcast, it can it can seem like you're an expert. But as I said to you when we were starting this, I'm as far from you know like twenty even in my a day? own. You life. said twenty minutes a day. Uh, yeah, that's try a to robust, do twenty minutes a day. That's a robust habit. So, but the one the joke and I was going to make when people say they're good at meditation, I get very skeptical. So <laughs> when you say you're not good at that, tells me you're doing it right. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So um, what I was going to say was that the thing that you never hear as a parable is the monk is walking up the, the mountain and he saw the guy furiously refreshing Twitter to see how many faves it his tweet got. And he says, what's meditation like? And the monk retweets himself. And then what's it? You know, so I do. Sometimes I think that uh, there's a value in some of the value for me is in being more mindful of what different stimuli in my life are pulling from me what what identity they're calling forth what feelings are calling forth and as you say sometimes there are answers to be found in better practice in in not just meditation but i you know i find exercise to be an incredibly calming thing yeah. i mean you know yes. sleeping like these are these are good things and sometimes it's in saying actually i have architected things in a way that is not making me happy actually i've architected things in ways that does not interact with my personal basket of anxieties and needs and hopes and wants very well. And, and I have to make changes. One thing that is true about how I think about a lot of things, and this goes far beyond meditations, actually, I think about politics and, and tech and, and a lot of other things. Uh, my wife calls me a structuralist, a Kleinian structuralist. I am not a huge believer in individual agency. And I'm somebody who tends to see a lot more uh, than what we want to admit is being elicited by the systems in which we place ourselves. So when that is the lesson I take from meditating, there's something about my brain where that ends up being the lesson I take from almost everything. And so it's probably not a surprise that I spend more time meditating and looking at my own emotions and begin to question the systems in which I've embedded myself. Uh, that might be a, a, an idiosyncratic thing for me that, that may not be how other people experience the world So, what does that mean does that get you thinking about changing the structure of your yeah. life so you know as i said one thing i did over the past year is i stepped down as editor-in-chief of my organization and i am really proud of having done that uh, I had a did a podcast a while back with a guy named Arthur Brooks. Uh, who's, I know. Yes, I want to have him great. on this. Oh, podcast. he'd be yes. fantastic. Yes. You should not have me on that. You should have Arthur on this podcast. He's much better. It's not uh, he's much more interesting. Exclusive. Um, 
and he he had this great line and we should tell everybody he's he's from the he's uh, the head of the american enterprise institute which is a, a big conservative think tank in washington but he's an economist who in his past life focused on happiness research and, and thought a lot about what actually makes people happy and he's just a guy he's a catholic and he has a very very open spiritual outlook on life he's somebody who absorbs life through a, a very very interesting filter uh, but i'd had him on my podcast and he talked about the way that uh he was talking here about research about work. This was long before we were having, I was having this conversation with people. And he was saying that a thing that can happen to people is that, you know, they, they keep rising up at work. And then at a certain point, they rise above the level where the things they're doing are the things they really love doing. Mm-hmm. But that to go down is a loss of status. And so people have trouble doing that too. And so they get trapped because on the one hand, they don't want to feel demoted or to see other people to feel like they were demoted. And on the other hand, um, they're not doing the things that, that really bring them the joy, the most joy, the, the things that make them feel most like them. And for me, recognizing at a certain point that as much, I mean, I, I have a probably unhealthy level of uh, like emotional connection to the organization that I launched. And really, I, I mean, I think about it all the time and I'm immensely proud of it and I care about it, but recognizing at a certain point that, what I was doing was not the best use for me in it uh, was something I was proud of. Um, that, that was a, that was a kind of hard internal decision to come to, yeah. um, you know, and it had guilt and whatever. Um, do you and think the clarity that you generated through meditation was useful? In I that think process? it was helpful in that. Um, I do. Is uh, your life calmer now? It's get, Yeah, it, it is actually. So um, then meditation has definitely made you calmer by the trend. <laughs> well, and, and I think, and you know, I don't want to give, there are a lot of things I was going through during course, this period to try course. to understand this, but and I'd say too with tech, I've become very, very skeptical in a way that a lot of other people are too. So I don't think this is something special to me, but a lot of the platforms in which I had engaged pretty thoughtlessly over the past couple of years, Twitter and Facebook and others, just you know we were all in it, so I'm in it too, and you know I have however many followers, and isn't that great? And you know, trying to watch, well, what's actually happening to, happening to me when I'm there? <laughs> do I feel like I'm being more productive? Do I feel like I'm being a good version of myself? It's it's led to a lot more reassessment for me. Again, how much of this is meditation and how much of meditation is a symptom of some of the underlying discomfort that to led to the meditation? It's like, who knows? But 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 that stuff I feel has been has been important. And so I am. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about the structures in which I put myself and, and the way I sort of build my own life you know what 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 story which parts of myself am i reinforcing and which parts of myself am i calling back i'll, I'll give one sorry i know i'm rambling here but no this is what something is something for. happened on twitter recent over the last year that i think is really interesting once i realized it had happened to me so twitter until i may have the dates wrong but until let's say a year ago was notable in that it was not algorithmic so when you turn on twitter.com you had a running reverse chronological stream of just what everybody you follow had tweeted. So whatever I saw, if you had tweeted two seconds before, that's what I saw. Then Twitter made changes. They made changes in part because they had fallen way behind Facebook. Um, and Facebook has this news feed, and the news feed is delivered algorithmically, and it has complicated equations running in the background, working off of what it thinks you like, and then what it thinks you're going to want to see, and, and you know what's going to engage you the most. So Twitter went and did a version of that. So now when I turn on Twitter, Instead of just seeing the overwhelm of people shouting at each other, which even there is probably not the best thing for me, now I see a algorithmically served up 
menu of the best performing tweets from everybody else in my industry. Right, things you might have missed. Things or, you might have missed. Yeah. And so I'm not even just seeing all of their tweets. I'm just seeing it's like my friend Chris Hayes at MSNBC. Um, you know, I see the tweet of his that performed absolutely the best in the past 24 hours. And what that calls up in me is like, oh, you should write some better performing tweets. <laughs> right? Like, this is your job. You should be competing with all the people on Twitter in addition to all the things you actually get paid to do. And it took me a little while to realize because I began using the platform more. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, and I began getting better numbers. And, you know, I had 20,000 retweets. And isn't that great? And somebody was like, oh, my God, this has done such a great job playing on my own status anxiety. Like, it has just shown me something every time I, I, I come in now that the part of me it pulls out is a part that always worries I'm falling behind in my industry. The part of me that always thinks I'm not doing enough at my work. The part of me that thinks, like, this could definitely be better. You know, what are you doing? Like, come on, figure this out. And, you know, that's a – like, I am not going to change up by meditating. I'm going to change up by not going to the Twitter home screen as much. Like, that is the answer. Right, but I just think these things are so multifactorial that actually you w- – uh, I don't know. I'm not in your mind. So, and and I don't. I also am not one. I think it's very dangerous to get for somebody in my position to get overly dogmatic about the benefits of meditation. Um, so, uh, with those caveats issued, my hunch is that that you're not giving your practice enough credit and that actually you're making a bunch of decisions that are again multifactorial like you probably married really well and and your wife gives I you did, good thank advice you. and you are getting older and you have so you're you're becoming more self-aware and so i think it's probably a bunch of stuff but what to me on the receiving end of everything you've just said i'm hearing somebody who's more self-aware and making decisions about how to have a uh, calmer, saner life. And that I would put, it sounds to me like I would put meditation in the variables that are pushing you oh, in that course. direction. I mean, yes. I, I don't think we're disagreeing on this at all. Yeah. In fact, what, what I said there, when I said at the end, like the way I'm going to fix that is not meditation. The way I can see that might be meditation. That's my point. But the way I can fix it is to change yes. the structures yes. in which I, I operate. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. part of the feeling there is, okay, when I get up from, from sitting for a while, I feel calm, and then the second I open my computer, I don't. So what's going on there? I mean, part of it is just, is just knowing what it feels like when you feel calm so you don't become yeah. so used to the yeah. feeling of feeling overwhelmed and stressed out but you're picking that it up becomes the sticks and, keeping, and continuing to walk. That's I, what you're doing. It's true. I'm a very enlightened person. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, did, what did Bob Wright say to you? What did Bob Wright say in his book that has continued to resonate with you? So I almost wish I could retitle that book i i've come to really think a lot about as i said that book and i i wanted i want to recommend that book to a lot of people who do not want to read a book about buddhism yeah because it's such a good book about the mind and bob is such a, a sharp thoughtful science writer and the thing i've been thinking about with that book is in the line of work i'm in you end up considering a lot of ideas and hearing about a lot of ideas that are meant to solve on some really fundamental level, the fact that it's like things feel kind of shitty all the time, <laughs> like they feel economically, shitty, they feel, you know, um, they, they feel politically. Shitty. And the thing that I've been thinking about a lot from that book is so the core argument of that book, in my view, and, and, and you should tell me if you feel this is wrong, because I, I know you've, you've spoken to Bob about this. But the, the core argument of that book, when I, when I read it and, and, and interviewed him, is that fundamentally the brain did not evolve to make us happy Mm. 
the brain evolved to make us want things. The brain evolved to make sure that we are going to survive and we we're going to reproduce. And if you had a mind, if you had, uh, if you built a creature that adapted very quickly to what it had and was satisfied with that, that creature was not going to thrive um, in a in a you know doggy dog evolutionary world. And one of the things that that has left me thinking a lot about is how many of the problems that we want to solve through policy or changing tech have to do with the way just humans are how much of the suffering is baked into the system that isn't to say that we shouldn't be trying to solve it but it is to say that if you don't come from the perspective that we are going to fasten onto the parts of a system that have tribalism embedded in them that have status competition embedded in them, that have wanting and craving embedded in them, that if you don't begin with a realistic picture of the mind, of, of how humans operate, then no system you build is going to work. Because the thing, and, and this is my, my sort of core point about it, I think that we often intuitively frame things as like a fall from grace. We, we intuitively frame things. I, I mean, I read this about capitalist systems or neoliberal systems all the time, that they've somehow hijacked human beings into this you know, endless wanting and grasping. And, and my take on it is different, that human beings were like that. And capitalism and neoliberalism are systems that one reason that they have worked um, to the extent they have worked is that they – they are within the greased grooves of humanity that they have that they they work with kind of something that we already are now recognizing that thing we already are can get supercharged we can get too much of it and it can become a, a really bad way of living a life well that that's an important realization too but it means that if you're going to start trying to imagine a system which is going to cut against that you can't imagine that what will happen is people will just embrace it um, that, you know, just moving into the new thing, that's where they're going to be and they're going to be happy. Actually, like it takes real intense work. I mean, you're talking about what it takes to to be a, a great meditator. It takes real intense work to overcome these parts of yourself. It's not something you can do just by tweaking a system and definitely not something you can do by tweaking a system without recognizing that that's why the system was working in the first place. Except there are levels here. So mm -hmm. there's Joseph Goldstein and then there's me who's 10 percent, you know, happier than he used to be. What I what what I think is the brilliance of the Buddha is that he very he was very, very wisely and um keenly focused on the pleasure centers of our brain what keeps us moving is the wanting but he has pointed out that it feels better to be mindful than mindless if you're paying attention it feels better to be nice rather than to be cruel and actually so that if you boost your mindfulness quotient you start to see these things and then it just becomes a new greased groove and uh so to me that, that actually gives me a lot of optimism that once you point out to people that the mind is trainable why wouldn't you do that uh now i, I you know there are actually a bunch of reasons why you wouldn't because uh, because of the same mind that we evolved for is also not good at adopting healthy habits um and so that that's a huge obstacle but I, I do think there is something to be said about the fact that the, the Buddha, with the, the, the brilliance that Bob is honing in on is that actually you can, you can co-opt these same systems to create a saner world. I agree. I just think that um, – uh, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with any of that actually. I, I'm just saying the reason the book is stuck with me is that in, in a kind of different realm – uh, so do I take how Bob is looking at the systems themselves and, 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 and you know the ideas of Buddhism, that to me is very, very straightforwardly correct. 
but it's been helping me think about other spaces of reform. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an I'm, example. But that's what I'm saying. So, in other systems of yeah. reform, you can bring this spirit. Yes, and and but I think that the hard part is that the way dialogues about reform happen very rarely has a spirit. The way dialogues about reform happen almost always has implicitly that we have, for reasons that are hard to understand or possibly related to malign forces that are you know controlling everything behind these, we've just completely screwed up. We have lost touch with ourselves. We are, are not doing the thing that would obviously be better for us to be doing. We just need to do the thing that would obviously be better. And, you know, I don't mean to get too much into sort of 70s personal transformation stuff, but I think a lot of these things need to have more of a sense of, well, why do we why do human beings end up choosing the systems we do? Why? Why, if this is so obviously better, hasn't it just won out on its own? And it's because we're not built to be happy. We're not built to pursue happiness in that way. I'll give you a, an example. So I read a book recently I really enjoyed and, and would recommend to people who enjoy this podcast called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. And uh, the book is uh, – he, he suffered from – and suffers from very, very deep depression. And the book is about trying to re-understand a lot of depression as – a function not just of individual chemical imbalance, but how society is structured, individual things that are happening in people's lives. Understanding depression is contextual, not just chemical. Mm -hmm. On some level, that's obviously true. And on another level, it's often forgotten. When and appealing you, to you as a systems thinker. Appealing to me as a systems thinker. But and, – and I have a podcast with Johan coming out soon, and, and, and we talk about this in there. One of the places where I, I found the book uh, frustrating is that there are a lot of things in it where it's like, well, look, if that's so much obviously better and nothing's stopping people from doing it now, right? If it's so much better for people to spend time outside and we could spend more time outside, most of us. I mean, there are a couple of us who can't, but if most of us could spend more time going to the park instead of watching so much Netflix or whatever, why aren't we? And in some ways, I think the it can get looked at as too much of a mystery, when in fact, it's not that much of a mystery. It's, you know, we, for whatever reason, we are not always built to do the things that would be better for us. And just starting with that idea, if you, for me, absorbing that idea fully has made a lot of things that didn't make as much sense to me make more sense. And has helped me, I think, try to think about if you're going to do, I'm a big reformer myself. I have lots of ideas about how the world could be a better place. But if you're going to implement them, recognizing that uh, you know you often you're, you're often going to need to be working to pull people away from uh, from ways of approaching problems and ways of approaching their lives that are, are, are really deeply baked in. As you're saying, there's a lot of wisdom in Buddhism, but one thing that that wisdom includes is that you got to practice a lot. You're trying to overcome something very deeply built into you. And, and that's difficult. And I think just beginning with a realistic appraisal, that difficulty is important. What, what do you think that you recently had in your podcast, Tristan Harris, mm -hmm. who I don't know, and actually I want to get him on this podcast, who's a former Google executive who's now started a group, uh, something like Center for Humane Technology, something along those lines, designed to get technology uh, working better for actual human beings. What, if anything, can be done in, in the spirit for you as a reformer to make technology more humane? And do you think any of the wisdom of the Buddha can be useful there? Ooh, so, so Tristan's, uh, just for people who are not super familiar with it, Tristan, um, his basic argument 
is that what's happened is that Silicon Valley, you know, sort of writ large, has built a lot of products that are designed to be addictive, that are are designed with full knowledge of the ways a human, not full knowledge because we don't have that, but but with a lot of knowledge about the ways a human brain actually works, what actually addicts it. So for instance, you're more likely to become addicted to something with variable rewards than something that always rewards you. Mm-hmm. You would not enjoy playing slots so much if it gave you a dime every time, but if sometimes it gives you a hundred bucks and then like a million other times it gives you nothing, it's very exciting. So his whole thing is that we are building these products to addict us. We are built. We are. We are in these products, and they are doing things to like play on our status anxiety, to play on our sense of social obligation, to play on the way the human um, eye connects to color as opposed to grayscale, and all of it is leading to us ending up doing a lot of things that, in a kind of higher order, more mindful way, we actually wouldn't want to be doing. So, how can you change that? He's set up this system or the center with some very, very, very good people to, to try to begin doing that research. He sort of has a four-point plan, which I'm going to forget parts of it. But one of the things that he's doing that I think is really important, and if uh, my hope for this comes from anywhere, it comes from here, is actually trying to change the cultural conversation around this. So, yes, are there different ways that we could architect these platforms so that they're not quite as crazy-making? There 100% are. A very good example is Facebook Messenger. When you use Facebook Messenger, it automatically creates what's called a read receipt, So you send something to your friend and then your friend opens it. And as soon as they open it, they know and it says a receipt has gone back to you saying they've read it. And that means that if you don't send anything back, they know you've read it and have now ignored them. Um, Now, you can have read receipts on email. You can have read receipts on iMessage, but they don't make you do it because nobody wants that. Nobody wants everybody to know exactly when they've read something. Maybe they don't want to get to doing a response right then. That's a a way of building into a system something that is going to make you feel really bad if you don't engage with the product more, if you let anything go without response. Um, So you can just take stuff like that out, which would be nice. But in order for that stuff to really get taken out, I think in the long run, People have to get upset. They have to start looking at these. And I think this is happening. We're in the midst of a very profound backlash against these tech platforms. They have to begin seeing what's happened on them as problematic, as bad. The people who work for them have to feel a little bit bad about what they're doing. Something um, Tristan argues is that, look, like these companies are in this unbelievably intense competition for uh, employee talent. If the best people don't want to work at companies that they think aren't good for the world, Well, that's going to force these companies to change as surely as anything else will. Mm -hmm. So part of it is actually first coming to some recognition that what's happening on Facebook, that what's happening on Twitter, that what's happening on Snapchat, what's happening on Instagram, that it's not random. It isn't just the way it is. The ways that we are interacting with the platforms are not just 100% our revealed preference. And that, you know, we need to we need to kind of step back and, and in a slightly more rational space ask if these things are are good for us. Now, beyond that, I'm not that optimistic about it. I think it's pretty hard. I don't see, I've not heard any proposals for regulation that I think would work. Um, I'm not sure I prefer politicians making some of the decisions about where I should be spending my time. I think that addiction is a very powerful thing that we're getting better at eliciting in people. I'm very concerned about virtual reality from this perspective. I think that how good that's going to be in 20 years is something that our societies are not prepared for at all. Um, And, you know, I could see this going in a really bad direction. I I don't think it's at all hard to imagine um, what I like to call the Ready Player One dystopia, where 
real life for a lot of people becomes quite quite a lot worse um, than virtual life uh, because virtual life is really built for their pleasure centers and built to give them purpose and built to make them feel, you know, you see this already happening with addictions to massive multiplayer online games. Um, and I could imagine as that technology gets way better and way more omnipresent, this going in a, this going in a really scary direction. So while I'm, I'm happy to see what's happening here, I, I don't have a plan, um, but I think hard problems, they don't, have easy solutions but they have to come from some kind of cultural understanding that there is a problem in the first place so interesting do you do you think that because i mean as a proper structuralist you're looking at like the onus that is on the companies to or maybe even the government to get involved and change the way these things are built but what about on the user end is there i mean like am i naive to think that maybe there would be a uh, 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 a salubrious role that uh, mindfulness or just little behavioral hacks that could could play for the rest of us in terms of how we use this stuff. I mean, well, expand that. Tell, tell me. Well, for example, example, we have. Um, I'm I'm not great at this stuff because every you you were talking before about like refreshing your tweet tweets to see how many likes you get i totally do that so it doesn't really be up front with i didn't it. say i didn't do that just for the record no 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 i think <laughs> i think i think the implication although was you that know you, do. you know there's a, a i i download this at work um now i'm blanking on the name about it which i feel terrible about there's a chrome um extension that will now if you install it you will see none of that information on twitter you won't see how many followers you or anybody else has how many retweets how many favorites how many anything you just see tweets and i I've I've installed it and I think it actually makes the platform a, a bit for me as somebody who does this partially professionally a little bit less crazy making. I'm a little less invested in my social media success by by nature of our, the difference in our jobs than you, but I certainly have some of this. It, I definitely feel it. Um, but I guess I, I, so. For example, uh, uh, on the Ten Percent Happier app, there's this great uh, little meditation and I want to do more on this from a teacher named Alexis Santos and he talks about using your phone mindfully just just like the simple act of while you're engaged with whatever you're doing on in the on the screen mm -hmm. just to feel the heft of the thing in your hand um, that actually can sometimes for nanoseconds pull me out of the uh, story that I'm in as I engage with whatever article I'm reading or whatever Instagram picture I've posted and I want to see how many likes there are. So these are just that's just a small example and I wonder whether that's scalable in, in your mind. The no. <laughs> <laughs> rather than rather than giving the false hope answer. And and let me I'll I'll say why I'm skeptical of that kind of thing. When you think about not just these platforms but a lot of problems we have. It is a case that some amount of people are very invested in solving problems for themselves and, and maybe or maybe not for others. So there's some amount of there's some number of people who are like, you know what? I do not like the way I feel when I'm on Facebook. I don't like the way I feel when I'm on Snapchat. I got to figure this out. And they turn on. They're already somebody who has downloaded a 10 percent meditation, 10 uh, percent happier meditation app. And then they go and they listen to the 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 particular meditation on breaking your Facebook addiction addiction or using um, your phone mindfully. And they begin to implement that or try to implement that. And maybe it works or maybe it doesn't. I'm not that worried about those folks i don't think i i don't think that's probably where the worst problems are happening 
I think that the stuff you really want to worry about and something Tristan says is happening with 14 year olds who are on these platforms who their social worlds and, and ways of understanding the social world are being formed right now. Their sense of what is and isn't normal has not really solidified. They don't have a kind of before. When I say to you, I remember Twitter before the algorithm. Well, I also remember the world before Twitter, but a 14-year-old doesn't. Um, I, I think the question of whether people know they even have a problem to solve and I, I recognize even saying this, it sounds so paternalistic, right? Well, who am I to tell them they have a problem to solve? And maybe, maybe I'm wrong, right? Well, maybe we have I'm similar nobody. discussions around obesity. We do very much, and so, and that's a, another good example, right? When I hear that, what I hear is, you know, what if we just made it easier for people or gave them more options to go into the gym? And that works for some people, obviously, but I think that. When you're dealing with something on this societal of a scale, asking that or, or assuming that the way you're going to solve it is one, you know, that everybody who does have a problem that is going to recognize it and then it's going to have the, the self-control to do something about it. And even as somebody who wants to do something about it for myself, I feel how hard it is. Uh, I just I think that's good. I think it should be out there. I'm glad that you guys have that um, have that meditation. I'm glad that you can grayscale your phone. I'm glad there's this little Chrome extension for Twitter. I think all these things are helpful on the margin, but I'm more worried about the the overall societal impact of it, given the size and, and scale of these platforms. And I don't think those kinds of things are going to to be enough. I'm going to do something slightly rude. Usually yeah. we record this in a studio and I have a clock above the guests. But I'm going to look at my watch just to make sure I haven't held you too long. And I haven't. So just let me get to my last question. Okay. Um, it doesn't have to be the last, but this is the last thing that was on my mind that I wanted to talk about, which is tribalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've you've talked about this on your show, uh, on the Ezra Klein show, uh, as well with a recent guest whose name I'm forgetting. Amy Chua. Amy Chua, yeah, from Yale, yep. who wrote the the Tiger Mom, um, and also the the new book Political Tribes. Yes, which political is tribes. Very very interesting. Um, do what? It's funny. To, I, I am, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I see a lot of people bemoaning tribalism these days. Correctly. But I don't see many people doing anything about it. Uh, I know there's a group called Better Angels that's done some stuff in terms of ringing reds and blues together. I know that Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, is going to be writing a book about what's tearing us apart. Um, uh, but I, I'm not seeing any any real huge momentum toward trying to fix this problem. Do you think anybody's doing anything? And what, if anything, can be done? So... I should say here that by the time – I don't know when this will come out, but um, in a, from where we are taping it, I'm a week and a half from going on book leave where I'm also going to be writing a book about political tribalism. So don't worry. It's all going to be fixed. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so I'm How thinking. I'm thinking about this book. So I'm I'm taking ten weeks of book leave, but I'm not. That's I nothing. I'm not going to finish the book. Okay. I'm going to okay. get a start on it. Um, and I'm also yeah. So I I'm I'm I want to get I want to get a lot of the conceptual work done. I'll say this for myself and, and as somebody trying to write, I don't think I'm going to have any solution to this at all. I do not think that there is a plausible solution given where the system is gone, given how communication technologies work right now, given the ways in which and, – and here's, by the way, a big thing with this. Given the ways in which our identities are increasingly stacked on top of each other. So it used to be that you could be a conservative and a Democrat. 
Um, if you go back to the 40s and the 50s, Strom Thurmond was the second most conservative member of the Senate, and he was a Democrat. The fact we were not even in a country where Democrat and liberal were stacked on top of each other as identities. You had liberal Republicans like George Romney, mm-hmm. um, Rockefeller Republicans, Rockefeller Republicans, and to say nothing of union membership, religion, geography. There are all these ways in which we are cross pressured in our identities. We are unbelievably stacked now. You tell me a couple things about you, I know which party you vote for. Yeah, so does Facebook. That what? So does Facebook, and that wasn't true thirty years ago. One thing that I I do think it's important to persuade people of in this conversation is that things have changed. Because we have had the same labels for things for a long time, we've had Democrats and Republicans a long time, it's very tempting to think it's always just been like this. And it hasn't. Things are are different now. So, one, we have a lot of what what I think of sort of catalyzing agents for tribalism. Um, It used to be harder to be tribal because we were part of a lot of tribes that, you know, overlapped with each other. Now, as we're just part of one super tribe that doesn't overlap with the other tribe nearly as much, it's much easier to become much more tribal. And it's, by the way, rational. The more you disagree with the other side, the further the, the, the two sides become in there and how distinct they are and their plans for America, the more it's reasonable to fear. You know, if you're somebody who cares a lot about, say, choice um, you know, in, 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 in reproduction, well, you know what? Compared to 40 years ago, the Republican Party is much more pro-life than it was. Um, and similarly, by the way, the other the, the other way around, if you you know, you had a lot of pro-life Democrats in 1990, you don't have them anymore. They're almost all gone. So if you care a lot about that from the from the pro-life side, then it's rational to be more concerned about the other party. So something happening is that our tribalism isn't just us all being jerks. It's also us responding somewhat accurately to a system in which the other side is becoming more culturally different from you, more ideologically different from you. Um, and and more demographically different from you. That's another that's another piece of this. that's really big. Back and geographically in, different. We're self sorting into different. We're self sorting. Urban and rural is a huge divide in this country now. Um, the I, I just I I'm very fixated on this number that I, I read in a book called How Democracies Die, and it's that I'm I don't remember the starting point of this uh, scale, but you know back in I think it was the 40s or the 50s, the Democratic Party was seven percent non-white. Um, and the and now it's forty four percent non white, and the Republican Party is still ninety percent white, and so the parties have also become the parties used to be much more mixed demographically. Now they're very very different demographically, and people have very deep demographic anxieties when they look at another side and see folks who don't look like them gaining power. We just that's what Amy Chua's book is about. We see this in society after society all across the world. So the thing I I want to say. That one, yes, this is a problem. It's a bigger problem than it was. It is becoming a bigger problem. Um, two, no, nobody's doing anything of a scale that would solve it. And nobody, and, and as this is somebody doing a lot of research in this space, nobody even has a remotely plausible sounding solution. Forget one that is going into execution or implementation. Um, and that includes people who've been writing books on this. I've been reading all these books and they always end, you know, I, I think this is a weakness in, in Amy Chua's book and, and others. They end with these calls for politicians to have more of a rhetoric of, of communal identity. Um, Amy's book ends with a uh, you know, an idea that, well, when we talk to each other one-to-one, we often are able to overcome our differences, which is great, but that doesn't scale. Um, I don't think we know how to do this. The one thing I do think we know how to do is work on the other side of the equation. Something unusual about the American political system is that it does not work amidst 
tribal, very, very heavy tribal disagreement. Unlike other systems where the expectation was they would be polarized, and so a majority party can govern, and then you know eventually they lose power to the minority party, and the minority party governs uh, and becomes a majority. Here, if you don't have compromise because of the way the Senate works, because of the number of veto points, because of the ways in which we apportion seats in the House and in the Senate, because of the way that the president can be elected with a minority of votes. I mean, all kinds of weird things happen in our system. We have a lot of veto points and a lot of counter small d democratic uh, rules. You can end up with a really, really, really paralyzed political system. And when that happens and the outcomes begin getting worse, then you get in this terrible loop. People are upset because the governing is bad. People being upset makes the governing worse and you just keep going. So one thing I do think we could do is think about how to create a political system that would work better amidst tribalism, a political system where you know, a majority party, if they get the votes, can govern a, a, a system where the outcomes are more legitimate, where voting is something we're able to do if, you know, they don't have, we don't, a lot of the voting ID laws and stuff worry me quite a lot. Money has become a big problem in the system. But what I will say is that getting from here to there is itself an unbelievably intimidating task. And also, it requires people to deal with uh, a pretty scary prospect, which is that the party they do not like could win. And then would be able to govern more aggressively and effectively than they can now, which even if that, you know, might in some abstract way be better for the system, for all the reasons that tribalism is scary and it's increasing, that's a scary thing to contemplate. I mean, if you're a liberal listening to this and you imagine the Republican Party completely freed right now from the filibuster, that's a scary thing to imagine. And so there are not answers to this. Um, But I do think, as with everything, to get towards an answer requires getting your arms around the problem, um, which is something I'm hoping to spend, you know, the next couple of months doing. I just keep coming back to I'm not a I'm not much of a thinker at all, but I I, I guess probably not a systems thinker. Um, I mean, I I see the validity to it when you talk about you being a structuralist. It makes complete sense to me. I don't have any beef with it other than to say that I I am interested in individual agency Mm -hmm. and how. you know, one-on-one, there may be hacks that can make you a happier actor within the system and add just a little bit of light to the sum of light. Oh, of course. Uh, and so, for example, when it comes to tribalism, something that I've been experimenting, and my my thoughts on this are not fully formed, but I've been experimenting on a couple levels. One is I just see that... Um, Increased self-awareness through mindfulness helps me see my biases. It helps me see that, oh, yeah, maybe I'm getting a little bit of dopamine every time something bad happens to the politicians that I I disagree with. And maybe that's a signal. Maybe there's something to look for there. And also I've been really trying to expose myself to, to really broaden my media diet in a way that shakes up some of my biases, which I find very healthy, not only as a journalist, but as a citizen. So what have you broadened out into? Um, Well, specifically, you know, I I would say that most of my news diet for my whole life has been mainstream media. I've never really listened much to far-left stuff. It's been, you know, I work at ABC News, I read The Times, um, uh, The Washington Post, I watch CNN, but recently I interviewed Ben Shapiro, who is, uh, for listeners who don't know him, a, a conservative, but very critical of Trump, but still a very conservative guy. Um, uh, he's got a 
show called the Ben Shapiro Show. It's a podcast, but he's also got a website called The Daily Wire. You know all of this. Um, and I found that listening to him regularly, if not daily, has really helped me. It's a very different hot take than what you get on uh, mainstream media. And I find so I find myself arguing with him a lot, but I find that process of kind of deliver, deliberately giving myself a jolt of a viewpoint that is way different than what I'm used to uh, is actually quite helpful. Uh, I, I think that's right. So I've, I have a couple thoughts on that. One is that there is definitely a lot somebody can do individually. When you ask me sort of what are solutions for tribalism, I think about it on the country scale. And that I think is very hard. What can one do as a person? I think there's a, a lot we can all do sort of for ourselves. Um, the media diet stuff is really interesting, and, and I, I say it for this reason. An intuition people have is that consuming a lot more media that is opposed to them uh, and opposed to their biases is going to make them open-minded. A lot of the time, it does the opposite. Yeah. A lot of the time, and there's a lot of research on this going back many, many, many years, we read that media with our hackles up. We read that media with kind of lawyer in our mind already being like, this argument's bad. Well, These so people are stupid. <laughs> I, I could totally see that. Although what's and, different for me is that I went and met Ben. So I've actually sure. interviewed him. And he's, uh, I, he's, a, he's a very charming individual. And uh, and so I feel like I kind of know him a little bit. So it's, yep, it feels like I'm having help. an argument with or, – or I'm just listening to the viewpoint of somebody I know to be a rational human being. Exactly. And so that's what I was going to say was that it's very important if you're going to do this kind of broadening of the media diet to find people who fit you in other ways. Right. We all have a lot of identities um, and we have a lot of different ways of understanding the world. Some of them are ideological, but others are not. They're temperamental. They're, you know, and so I seek out a lot of people who I don't agree with to, to read and listen to as well. But I am very one of the things I really try to do is make sure that they are folks who access the world in ways that I can listen to them. They're kind of in my tribe in another way that, you know, if they're if they're constantly like being jerks to people who I like. I'm not going to be able to hear them well, right? I need I need people who are who are different than that. Um, now maybe that's a the problem in in me, but I think it's true for a lot of people. I think finding people who knowing when you're reading someone that you can read with an open mind versus knowing when you're reading someone who it's like this is going to prove to you how right you are and wrong they are. That's an important thing to be mindful of. I'll also say that some things are just for me, you know, because I feel this in this era too. And I also feel that the signal to noise ratio has gotten very bad. Uh, it's just a lot of yelling. I'm reading a lot more books, a lot more books than I was a couple of years ago. I'm reading less news, actually. Hmm. I think that uh, as much as I, I write some news, and you know, uh, but I, I'm trying to expand out, and I think that you can really over-index on stuff happening in the Trump White House every day. The amount I end up reading about something Trump said that didn't end up mattering and never ended up happening, hell, the amount I write about that, it does not feel reasonable to me. So I'm spending more time on books and also on, on things that are maybe related to politics but not explicitly political. Uh, then finally, I've been thinking a little bit, I don't know if you saw this, but the New York Times had this article about a guy who's completely blockaded himself off from all political news whatsoever. Yeah, I read like, that. Like, doesn't know anything yes. going on. And yes. it, I mean, and the article on one hand is like an amazing piece of trolling from the Times. Like, you just like read this guy, like, what, what, what the hell are you doing? And on the other hand, 
Um, when you get to the bottom of the piece, after you've gotten through the insane level of work he is doing to not know what is happening in the world, like the insane level of work, you hear that it's not just that he's receded from the world completely. He has decided that his big project is going to be restoring some land near where he lives, that he thinks he can have a really positive impact on something happening near him. And so he's decided that he can't make anything better nationally, and it's just going to make him crazy to think about it. But he can make something better very, very locally. And I do think that all of us, um, I, I can't say all of us, I think that most of us, the overwhelming majority of us, think way too much about national politics and not nearly enough about local politics. And if you want to feel better, and if you want to be able to have a, an impact, and if you want to you know, be able to engage um, in a way where you can make a difference, in a way where people really need you, uh, like go check out what's happening locally. Uh, run for office, go get involved, go volunteer. And I don't just mean volunteer work. I mean, actual politics here. Local politics is often a whole lot more life affirming than national politics. And it needs people engaged in it a lot more. We, we way underrate its importance. So that's a, a piece of advice I often give people that I, I find the amount of time people are spending thinking about like, what can they do about Donald Trump, good or bad, versus the amount of time they're spending thinking about what they can do in their city or in their town, when they really could do a lot in their city and in their town. And who knows? People start by doing something in their city and in their town, and they end up in Congress or they end up a senator someday. So I, I think that's a place where, you know, asking yourself, are are you giving too much attention to just national stuff that really it's a kind of tribal fear that is activating you as opposed to to a place where you can engage constructively and feel good about what you're doing, I, I think if people really look at that, it will lead them more towards state and local politics in a way that I think is healthy. It's a great place to leave it. I had high expectations. You've exceeded them. Thank so you. nice to meet you finally. It's really great to be you in person it. as well. And I appreciate it. I've learned a, a tremendous amount from your from your books, and I'm a, I'm a great fan of the app. I told you when I came in, Jeff Warren is in my, my ears all the time. So oh, I appreciate all you do. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition.
Follow the competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.